This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet as you listen. My guest today is Ken Durazzo. He's the VP of Dell Research. Ken leads a team of uh, innovative researchers exploring cutting-edge technologies for the future of Dell and its customers. He has over two decades of experience as a technology leader in various domains, including networking, security, DevOps, and internet-enabling technologies. Some of his recent research areas include hybrid quantum computing, quantum-safe cryptography, as well as generative AI, human-machine interfaces, and heterogeneous computing acceleration and virtualization. Ken was previously a distinguished engineer at Cisco and currently holds 75 patents with several more pending. He's also the Dell representative to the World Economic Forum's Quantum Network and the National Academy's GWIR program. His company, Dell Technologies, helps organizations and individuals build their digital future and transform how they work, live, and play. The company provides customers with the industry's broadest and most innovative technology and services portfolio for the data era. So welcome, Ken, and thanks for joining me. I'm delighted you're here. Thanks for having me. It's a fantastic honor to be here. So, Ken, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guest to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. And my objective really is twofold, to give our audience a sense of what you did before you joined Dell, but also to orient our listeners more broadly to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So I wonder if you could please share with our listeners a bit about your background and past so far, maybe where you grew up, uh, where you went to school, what you studied, uh, insight into the companies or organizations where you worked before your current role. I lived and was born and raised in San Jose, California, which is uh, kind of uh, interesting if you happen to work in the Bay Area. Uh, there's a lot of transplants and there's very few native <laughs> native people <laughs> to the area. So, um, so born and raised here in uh, San Jose, California. I've lived here pretty much my entire life. I now live just a little bit south of, of San Jose, about 15 to 20 miles south of, of where I grew up. So it's uh, I kind of kept it uh, fairly local, let's say. I have traveled extensively across the globe um, in various uh, companies that I've worked with before. Believe it or not, I'm not an academic, so I haven't um, always worked in research. Um, I started my career as an IT uh, person working for a, uh, uh, actually one of our local government agencies, actually. Um, and that was a, a, a fun start to this uh, wonderful career. Later on, transitioned, as you mentioned, to Cisco, um, where I worked on myriad technologies all the way from routing and switching load balancing, firewalls and security, you name it, I touched about every technology inside of Cisco with the notable exception of two parts. And that's where nothing on network management and nothing in uh, on IP telephony. I stayed away from those two uh, <laughs> sticky uh, sticky technologies. Later on, I, I, I was uh, approached by uh, John Rose to come work at Dell Technologies um, and start to build a research team, applied research team um, at Dell. And really, you know, our, our mission and our goal is, is very simple, to look at the entire landscape of emerging technologies 
and um, identify what, you know, what are the technologies that are um, emergent, that are opportunistic, that, that Dell should uh, lean into and which technologies might be not, not good for Dell or not good for the industry and, and highlight, you know, both of those two and, and figure out how we could leverage our innovation capabilities to either help us rapidly advance in a particular area or provide mitigations for um, anything that, that was not as uh, as opportunistic or good. Yeah. So I have to say I had several Dell laptops back in the day, <laughs> the early days of, uh, you know, portable computing, if you will. And I think I had a desktop as well, but the question it begs for me, and you kind of implied the answer, but you know, how did Dell come to establish a quantum practice? I mean, I don't know that people generally think of the company again, with all due respect as being uh, sort of in that space, but I think it's very exciting that, that Dell, you know, is moving into this uh, domain. And I just wanted to give us some color around like what the business drivers were. Yeah, it was actually fairly interesting. So again, I, I kind of gave a hint there, which was that, you know, my role is to make sure that we can look for any icebergs or landing strips, right, for technology. And so, you know, the icebergs are things that you want to make sure that you understand that could be um, impactful to the business, potentially in a negative type of way, or the landing strip is someplace that, that's a great jump off point that allows you to, to do something differently, get fuel or whatever else to use that analogy. And so as part of that, there was a point in, in approximately, I think it was about 2018, maybe it was, it might've been 2016 at this point, but um, there was a, a bit of talking of, of, uh, about quantum and maybe some questions, fundamental questions about, you know, is quantum the new type of computer? Does it replace or supplant all computing or does it have a very specific role? And I think the industry at one point in time was not as clear about, you know, where the end state of quantum could be. So when I started to take a look at it, you know, I talked with, with my boss at the time, John Rose, and I said, hey, I'm going to start looking at quantum. And it was going to be a personal journey for me at that point, because I was fundamentally interested in the technology and wanted to understand more about the impact. So I started leading the research um, on this side. It was funny, my, my first um, exploit here, and it was a, there was a very tight learning lesson in this one. As part of the, the way to start to get up to speed, I'm a heavy proponent of hands-on keyboard. So for doing experimentation and understanding technologies by using them and and uh, and formulating them, uh, you know, for making them do a function. Yeah. So I downloaded a simulator. I was um, in uh, in Mexico on vacation, and as it always is, I'm never far away from technology. So I downloaded <laughs> a simulator, and um, I started working on the simulator to construct a quantum circuit on my laptop. And um, wow. I, I constructed a, yeah, that, that was my vacation. That was oh, my man. vacation. So um, um, I constructed a circuit, a quantum circuit that had a um, hundred operations with a hundred, a um, hundred qubits. Hmm. And that was a very huge um, learning opportunity for me because I tied up my laptop um, it was in a complete computational, fully utilized state for like four days, and um, <laughs> nice. it, finally, it finally finished. But that was a pretty painful experience. <laughs> so that makes sense for sure. That's, thank you for sharing that insight. Uh, I read a piece you authored on the importance of creating hybrid on-prem compute environments. 
that connect quantum and HPC instantiation. There seems to be a lot of talk about this, actually, a lot of focus on this as a sort of viable option or next step or kind of killer app is the right qualifier. But the fact that we, you know, we can combine these two quantum uh, solutions. So tell me, you know, why you think this is important and how, again, how it might drive broader adoption of quantum computing solutions. So this is actually interesting because I think the, um, we uncovered, we thought that it was around one piece, which still holds, holds true. And I'll talk about that in a second, but as we continue to do more experimentation and research, we found out that maybe there's also another part to the, to the story as well. So where we started was um, with a basic premise, quantum computers can accelerate the optim- the uh, processing of algorithms of certain, you know, quantum algorithms, right? So algorithms that are written for a quantum machine and due to the power and potential future power of quantum machines that we believe that they will continue to be algorithmic, strong algorithmic processors. Right. But if you were, but if you were to take a look at it though, you need, I, I, I say very simplistically, I tell people applications run on classical infrastructure and algorithms are optimized on quantum processors. And so if you take that split, it's a really simplistic split, but it's a way of describing that there's an interactivity path between um, users and outcomes on applications and acceleration of the algorithms on quantum machines. And that interplay between those two is an increasingly important one. And again, are you, well, we'll talk a little later maybe about clients, but I mean, the idea is that quantum can do one thing well and maybe existing HPC solutions do something else well. And the key is finding interoperability solutions, right? Or ways to connect those two approaches. Yeah, it, that, that's a, that is definitely a way to saying it. You know, I, I, I often tell people that we call um, quantum computers QPUs or quantum processing units right. because they mirror some of, some of the implementation characteristics of like say a GPU, right? And HPC already works with GPUs integrated into the classical systems today um, to perform um, large-scale experimentation and uh, and computation, and likewise, quantum computers will have a role in doing the same thing um, over time. That's a good setup for my next question, which is, you know, I described your sort of remit, your portfolio, in my introductory remarks, and want to get your take on how you see quantum computing being applied, say, to advance other emerging technologies like generative AI, maybe quantum machine learning, computer vision, cryptography, other applications. Yeah, so the, that that's actually a really broad question. It's a fairly yeah, that's interesting a big question, question for sure. Yeah, I, I think some of the early um, telemetry that we're getting is there's there's certain types of algorithms that are more likely to be um, let's call it to gain some advantage in the short term. Um, things like uh, chemistry applications, etc. Um, I think those are more likely to to see acceleration or to get some advantage in the near term. As we, as we continue to develop in the industry, um, gain more density in qubits, get closer to fault-tolerant quantum systems, and or continue to mitigate error on these large-scale quantum systems, you know, move from the NISC era, which is the noisy intermediate scale quantum system era, out, out into a more fault-tolerant quantum. I think that the a massive power that we're going to get from a computational construct will allow us to 
see more advantage. And one area that I think is really interesting that we're starting to poke at now is taking a, a probabilistic computer, like a quantum computer, and binding it with probabilistic algorithms, right? AI is about probabilities, right? It's this statistics and probabilities. And I think, you know, combining those two at some point in the future um, is going to be very interesting. Yeah. However, I would I would caution that to say, I think we still need to do work um, on the AI systems. You know, it will be, there will be two threads of continued research, one of which is to building those fault-tolerant quantum systems to continue to develop in terms of capabilities. And then there's a second part, which is around the how we train and use AI today may have to shift in the future in order to be less about classical and more about quantum. And yeah. I, I will humbly say that we've developed AI today in a way that has allowed us to execute them optimally on classical systems. But since those behavioral properties of quantum systems are so different, I think that we may have to change some things in AI and the programming mechanisms, et cetera, in order to truly take full advantage of a probabilistic quantum computer. Oh, that's great. Thank you. When I talk about your um, partnership with INQ, I read that you worked with them last year to test a hybrid classical quantum platform leveraging uh, a Dell EMC PowerEd server paired with INQ's simulation engine and quantum processing unit, QPU. How did this relationship evolve, and where are you now in the process? This is all about, right now, I think a lot of the, um, the vendor, uh, vendor interactions in space has been around um, finding those applications where we could start to see the hint of advantage with quantum systems. It's still early days in the world of quantum, so there's still, I think, quite a bit of runway for us to, to look at. When we started to look at that IMQ, they had a system that was available to us, um, and, and we started to look at, is there, a, is there a way for us to prove out how um, classical and quantum systems interact together? Because that was still an unexplored area at that time. And I think we've we've found ways to actually blend the classical and the quantum systems um, in some very interesting ways today that allows us to um, to build intelligence into the classical system, which allows us to um, exercise the right quantum system for that algorithm. And so, if you want me to break down that a little bit, I think that this there were some key learnings. Uh, yes, please. That. Yeah. We've built intelligence into our classical systems that allow us to, to look at algorithms, to analyze the algorithms, using AI, by the way, to, uh, to analyze the algorithms, to identify the characteristics of, of um, execution on the quantum circuits. And we'll use technologies like quantum um, or circuit cutting, as an example, to allow us to chop the quantum circuit down into smaller atomic units, which would then be run on either simulators, noisy simulators like the INQ noise simulator or um, physical quantum systems in ways that allow us to get to outcomes faster, either better or faster, one of those two, or, or more cost-effective too. There's all, there's all kinds of permutations in the ways that you could use technologies like this in order to figure out um, which parameters that you'd like to select in order to optimize your algorithmic processing uh, on this. I will say that there's some fascinating things that we've learned. If you um, just take a look architecturally at what we've done, simulators are 
pure qubits. So there's no error in simulated qubits, right? And so when you exercise a 38 qubit instance on a simulator, you're getting 38 full qubits to the, to the equation. Um, and that differs a lot from um, the physical qubits. And so the introduction of the IonQ noise simulator was actually pretty interesting to us because it took us out of the realm of just expecting that simulators running on classic um, classical gear always had perfect qubits. They, 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 uh, they actually take the time to model their simulator, the noise simulator, after their physical hardware. Um, and that allows us to gain better experimental telemetry on how these systems will operate at scale. So, yeah, fascinating. Great collaboration. So speaking of collaboration, are there any, any other strategic partnerships um, that you've been able to leverage to deliver quantum solutions? Are there maybe other preferred partners that Dell works with uh, that you can describe for our listeners? Uh, we've been, you know, working with IBM for a really long time. And we've been, um, um, our first instance of our um, hybrid classical quantum program um, was built upon Qiskit and in conjunction with IBM. So we have um, embedded support for, you know, IBM systems inside of our um, inside of our base platform. So we've we've been working with IBM for quite a while. In fact, um, the initial implementation of our hybrid quantum system was built upon Qiskit and um, and has embedded support for IBM Q systems. Uh, we just have not monetized that or or uh, or brought it to market in any meaningful way. So IBM is definitely one. We've also um, haven't announced, and so I can't really talk too much about it. But we have announced uh, some some interworking and support. I, we recently released a blog with Eny on doing optimization um, on some um, annealing platforms as a way to um, to go on a journey with quantum quantum technologies in general, right? Um, there's a series of challenges um, that are optimization problems that are either executed on quantum or on uh, classical solvers, or they are executed on annealing platforms today. Many of the future quantum systems should also be able to operationalize these um, optimization algorithms as well. And so um, working with E&Y, we explored Cubos and the ability for a, you know composing a problem in a in a cubo, which allows you to to run it on a classical solver, or an annealer, or a quantum system, and so that's the centered around how to how to allow customers to now start to build technology resilience in their systems that allow them to transit different technologies as they start to appear and become more useful in the market and as their problem spaces grow larger as well. I'm assuming our listeners can find that blog either on your site or on the EY site. That sounds terrific. Yeah, I think it's on our site actually. Yeah, and I can put it in the in the comments when we when we publish the podcast. Um, Ken, my audience is always interested in the perennial question, which is clients, right? So to the degree you can share, uh, who is Dell working with? What kinds of quantum solutions are you deploying for them? And uh, in addition, I'm always curious to know if you're seeing uptake in specific verticals, right? Financial services, biotech, material science. Are there others? Yeah, there's a, that's a that's a fascinating question. I would say that there's um, 
It is probably the maybe the usual suspects. I would I would actually say those that that lean into ad, advanced or emerging technology. So, financial services is a is a is a big one. Obviously, uh, government research labs uh, are are huge as well. Academic institutions were somewhat of a of an interesting one to me. And um, let me dig into that for a second. As as we well know, uh, you know, academia does a lot of of development. We're working with um, some partners like MIT that are deliver that are building fundamental quantum technologies um, today that that may hopefully at some point in time become uh, production uh, oriented systems, as well as ASU, etc. Right? There's a lot of different academic partners that we're working in uh, in that in that arena. But the interesting thing I think about that is is probably two vectors. Number one is they have um, theorists and practitioners building next generation um, technologies, but they also have their normal academic mission, which is how do we train the quantum workforce of the future? And that's all the way from the executive level, all the way through um, practitioners, data scientists, et cetera, like how do we catalyze a quantum workforce? And we've seen some, we're working with some uh, customers in that space in academia, which are um, now implementing simulation, uh, quantum simulation on our classical infrastructure as a way to train their students in mass. And the key here was kind of interesting to me. The physical quantum systems that are available today are still scarce resources. They're not wildly deployed. There's not a whole bunch of them, et cetera, right across the globe. And so quantum simulation is an extremely viable way to learn quantum and to build skill sets and expertise. Quantum simulation will get you 99.999% of the way um, there in terms of experimentation and the way that we built our system, whether you're running on a quantum simulator, a quantum noise simulator, or a physical quantum system, it's exactly the same. The learning experience is exactly the same. All you're doing is changing the target. And so it's extremely powerful from a learning perspective. It's extremely cost perfected, um, cost optimized, I guess you would say. Um, and you're able to train at scale. And that's that's the big key is, you know, we have places that have 5,000 students or greater inside of their CS programs that are putting hands on keyboard and learning about quantum systems through guided, you know, lectures, you know, courses, et cetera, guided curriculum, I guess you would say, um, to learn about these quantum systems and get hands-on experience with quantum. And that is something I see replicated around the world. A lot of CS programs are now starting to try to introduce quantum into the equation because it's one of those technologies that is more than likely to have a huge impact on everything that we do in the future. Yeah, that's terrific insight. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, get it. Preparing the workforce using, you know, it doesn't have to be specific, you know, real world quantum environments, but the simulators, lots of options for getting the workforce ready. So, Ken, I wanted to drill down a little bit into uh, the conversation about support from universities. Can you give me a sense of how you and your team have been working with Arizona State University and what uh, what ASU has been doing to collaborate with, with you and the team at Dell? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think it started out with some um, conversations about, you know, we, we have lots of research conversations, but this one started out with Sean as a, as a way of, um, Sean Dudley from, from ASU, as a way of figuring out where we could 
work meaningfully together. And, um, and in that, Sean had started the Quantum Collaborative. And that's an, it's a very fascinating consortium, probably one of the most uh, interesting ones that I've, I've been uh, involved with. They've composed a team of academia, industry experts, etc., and the collaboration, it's just a fantastic environment. I can't say enough about it. The, uh, everybody that's there at the consortia collaborates. We discuss large-scale problems, and then we just start to get to work. And the collaboration across the different, the various industry partners, academic partners, is just absolutely phenomenal. There's, there's no politicism. There's no, uh, no uh, haranguing about you know, what I'm doing versus what somebody else is doing. We just work together rapidly and very deeply to collaborate and solve problems. And ASU has been fantastic at catalyzing the right people with the right insights in order to come solve these, these uh, tremendous problems. Well, thank you for sharing that insight. So it certainly depends on you know, market opportunity, but I want to get your take based on where you sit on you know, how you see Dell's quantum portfolio evolving, say, over the next three to five to seven years? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that, you know, um, Dell fundamentally, um, I think if you look historically at our company, um, we look for opportunities to make computing better and more useful for our customers. Um, that said, we don't make silicon right at the end of the day we don't make silicon and it's highly unlikely uh, i don't see anything on a roadmap that tells us that we're going to build quantum computers right um however we do build large-scale systems hpc and supercomputer clusters and just like gpus like i said earlier the quantum processing units and those quantum systems are going to be invaluable to supercomputers to large-scale hpc customer clusters (laughs) and and I even see technology coming up soon where we're going to have the ability to put smaller scale quantum systems directly inside server platforms. And so there's, yeah. there's a, a, a long tail of a whole bunch of quantum acceleration that's going to be introduced to the industry over the next, let's say, five years. You know, And it's going to be on multiple vectors. The first one is going to be this. Quantum research, quantum technologies will continue to develop in ways that will um, allow us to get closer to that fault-tolerant quantum. So that's number one, higher density qubits, greater error correction. Inching towards you know fault-tolerant or racing towards fault-tolerant quantum is going to be something that will happen. Um, additionally, I think that there's, there's something here that we're starting to explore now, and that is really the role of that hybrid classical quantum interaction because we're starting to see something emerge which is which is really interesting that i alluded to earlier which is that it may the the end state for quantum might not just be quantum systems but it may be the ability to break we may see breakthroughs happen when we start to engage more than just physical quantum systems in a meaningful way. Like we're, I mentioned earlier that we're exploring circuit cutting as an example. I'll, I'll give maybe a, a, an interesting uh, sidebar to this. There's um, some research that's uh, contested research and still has to be you know, worked through of a university using um, 
quantum simulators and physical quantum systems in order to, in conjunction with each other, to build a larger virtual quantum system to break cryptography. It's, it's interesting in that what the, the premise is, is how can we build a distributed system that's composed of quantum simulation plus physical quantum systems and maybe even different types of physical quantum systems in order to do things ahead of being able to have a fault-tolerant quantum system, to really start to gain quantum advantage, but not just from a pure physical quantum system, from the use of classical simulation plus physical quantum systems in order to solve larger real-world problems that a quantum system, than a physical quantum system could handle by itself today. Fascinating. And is that an area that Dell is exploring, uh, the sort of combining physical and simulated environments? That's terrific. Yeah, we absolutely are. And we've we've been exploring that both in terms of things like, you know, uh, concepts like QML all the way through, or quantum machine learning, um, all the way through looking at um, how we could take a hybrid approach to the execution of, of uh, quantum algorithms. So there's a lot of research happening in that space. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I want to g- learn more about the World Economic Forum's Quantum Network. I know you're one of your jobs or roles is to represent Dell in this organization. Uh, I'm not that familiar with it. I'd love to know who are the other players and what are the st- strategic objectives? Is there a status you can share with us? Uh, sure. So um, I, I guess I'll start with the, with the participants. The participants are, it's a global array of um, business leaders, quantum leaders, <laughs> practitioners, et cetera, all combining together into this um, larger consortia um, that allows, that's really, you know, we focus on, Point problems like big questions and 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 looking at how we navigate those. One of them is you know how do we you know at what point do hmm, maybe I'll give two examples. The first example is we've published two papers so far. What one of them was on uh, on the quantum economy. You know what we see coming into the future and how that may result in a economic. Changes like what? What do governments and and other policymakers need to consider in order to ensure that they don't that they're a meaningful participant in the quantum economy? And so that that might be one area. A different work stream that recently published some work was on post quantum cryptography, um, the implications, how to think about it, how to catalyze your workforce and provide some meaningful actions towards. Um, being prepared for post-quantum cryptography. So it's that the work in the World Economic Forum really um, takes a look at huge, <laughs> at really large, complex problems that are that are kind of existential for nation states, for companies, for people to really rally around and uh, and try to understand the implications and how to think about these large problems and and make sure that they're able to meaningfully participate. And those uh, documents are available probably on the WEF site, or can they get navigated uh, yes. them from Dell? Or uh, I think they're published on the um, WEF site, and uh, I'll happily share some links as well. Great. No, that's terrific. I want to shift to a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is around workforce. You sort of implied um, challenges and opportunities uh, in our conversation so far, but I want to ask you about 
you know, the challenges facing a company like Dell in finding quantum talent. Also on a sidebar, shout out to uh, you and your team who recently worked on a certificate program at Arizona State University. And full disclosure, I was involved in that as well, uh, called Quantum Technologies for Executives and Leaders, QTEL. But can you tell our audience about uh, how you work with the university, how this relationship benefits the broader quantum community, and how you find talent maybe from from Arizona State? Yeah, I think this is a really in- interesting topic. Um, you know, I used to make a joke, uh, and I don't make it anymore because it's you know we've advanced um, from that um, quite a bit as an industry, but not that far, right? So my joke was there was probably you know. There's approximately, I think, 26 million developers of like professional developers of, of software and associated technologies uh, globally, right? Out of that 26 million, there's approximately, you know, 250 to maybe a thousand people worldwide that could write a quantum circuit that is, you know, a thousand qubits by a thousand operations, right? And so the 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 number of people that could meaningfully participate in just the algorithmic competition or the algorithmic uh, composition for quantum super limited, and uh, and so it's it's been really interesting to speak with um, academia to really try to figure out how we could take the charge to really build the quantum workforce in the future. And there are so many different roles and opportunities within the realm of quantum. It's not just, it's not just building the quantum systems or understanding the physics behind, um, you know, these quantum systems and how to scale those. There's manufacturing, uh, there's manufacturing that needs to happen around there. Um, We need to advance um, software um, all the way from all the way from the the way that we program quantum systems today into kind of how we make it more scalable and more useful um, over time. There's a ton of jobs that are going to need to be created and the workforce really needs to be catalyzed um, in order to to be able to take full advantage of quantum. Even if we had a national directive to implement quantum algorithms today, I think there would still be a talent shortage. And so I think that there's a lot of opportunity in this space to build further. And then I'll probably leave with one more remark, which is this, or at least I'll stop this. <laughs> I'll let you get back to questions that, you know, after this one remark, which is this. Today, we are, I like to call it in the ENIAC age. So if you go back to in computer history, there was a time that we used to have to write assembly language for computers. There was a time when we had to, formulate punch cards in order to instruct the computers how to perform those operations. And we are in quantum, we're back in the past with, with how we, how we do these things. There's, there's assembly language called chasm that we have to write in order to program the machines. And there's punch cards, you know, I call them punch cards, but they're the quantum circuits, which are analogous to a punch card um, that you need to write in order to perform the algorithmic computations. And so we're, we're going to have to develop quantum at several different levels. It's not just about the hardware, it's about the software too. We need to be able to start building a path to becoming higher level programming interfaces, which will allow more people to meaningful, meaningfully participate in the development of new algorithms and applications that are quantum oriented. Great, I totally agree. I, it, 
we're coming from ENIAC for sure. The room-sized tube-driven uh, calculator <laughs> back in yeah. 1945 or something. Yeah. So, Ken, we're coming to the end of the conversation. I always like to close the podcast by asking my guests to share their vision for where they think quantum computing might be in three to five to 10 years. And again, more broadly, what kind of impact do you think it's going to have on how we live and work? You know, wax philosophic, look into your crystal ball. What do you, what do you think? That's a really challenging one because there's so many um, potential variations and so many outcomes that could happen based upon some of these things that we talked about today. How, how deep are we able to go into NISC or are we able to transit to fault-tolerant quantum in the next five years? That's still an open question. When I look at the um, hardware roadmaps for many of the vendors that we, that we work with, I see some hints of some amazing, amazing inflection points that we're, that we're going to be seeing on the number of available qubits, on the fidelity of the qubits that are really going to open up things that just restrictions that just exist today. So just looking at that alone, I think that there's a great path forward. Um, does it happen in five years or does it happen in 10 years? I have no idea, right? So, yeah. so there's a little bit of uncertainty in that part. Um, <laughs> no, so that's what makes it interesting for sure, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely, right? So the crystal ball is not so crystal clear at this point in time to, uh, to give us a telemetry on when these things will open up. I think that the world of software and um, I think that that hybrid classical quantum system interactions, as we start to further develop those and make them even more useful and more scalable and allow us to create larger virtual quantum systems, I think that area is going to open up a lot of technologies and it's going to open up a lot of ability for us to do things that we just can't do today. Um, so that will be another area that's going to, to further develop. And then finally, that last piece around, um, you know, development of the workforce, that, that I think is going to be a critical one, too, because if we can't develop the workforce within the next five years, none of this is going to matter. And I, I say that, I say that, you know, kind of, you know, uh, you know, tip of the tongue type of thing. But, but really, if we cannot catalyze the workforce, then the advancements will eventually start to slow down. Yeah, no, great, great insight, great uh, comment to end on. Um, Ken, thank you so much for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn. Uh, I want to point listeners to the website. If they go to Dell.com and search for quantum computing, there's a lot of information about the solutions you're putting together, some of the things we discussed today. I also noticed that you're on X, formerly Twitter, as at Kenneth DeRazzo. So I encourage our listeners to uh, follow you there. And thanks again. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Fantastic conversation. I appreciate the time and uh, the discussion. Thanks, Ken, for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on your social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Ken. Listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod. Brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.